Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We are still in this uh, series uh, on the unassembled life of faith. Not going to give you the whole intro like I did last week, but the short version is... uh, We talk a lot and mean it, and I still mean it from the bottom of my heart, that this is the most important thing we do in the week, is gather together, the assembly, and so much of what what we learn about the gifts of the Spirit and um, our worship has to do with what takes place when we are assembled, and yet, if you just do the math, we spend a lot more hours unassembled than we do assembled, and there are things about that, ways that we should live that should still separate us. I mean, one of the things that separates us now from the unbeliever, from the worldly, from the unchurched, is that we are here and they are not. They're sleeping in. And I'm not saying this. I'm not so shame on them. I'm saying this is is a difference. I had a conversation with somebody very close to me in my life. I'm not going to go into any detail other than that, who was complaining that they were so, so tired uh, because they had a long day yesterday, so they didn't, they didn't want to come to church. They didn't want to go to church. And I said, look, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I had a long day yesterday too. Uh, but this has never been, I can't, uh, I'm not going to say it never happens. Sometimes it is, especially on, I'll, I'll experience this. I'm just leveling with you. I'm, I'm, I'm being as honest as I can. Sometimes we have great service on Sunday and we've got uh, and this is rarer and rarer, but it used to happen a lot. We'd have to turn around, come, we, we, we would have to come back for a meeting sometimes later on on Sunday night, and that, was, that can be a little tough. But even if there's a Sunday service, even if there's a guest speaker, a Bob Yandian, sometimes once you've had church, you go out to lunch, you have your nap, it can be a little hard to drag yourself back. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just the whole, man, I'm relaxed, and yet I'm always glad I did. But uh, by and large, I can't remember the last time I felt that way about coming to church, especially on Sunday mornings. It's just something I look forward to. When I was a Ramah student, you know, and it's, oh, well, you're a Ramah student, you've got to go to church. Listen, during the summer, you know, a lot of the student body, they would go home, they'd disappear for the summer and come back for the next year. I was working at two full-time jobs. I'm working 80 hours a week. First, during the day, I'm working out in the sun, running a weed eater for the city of Tulsa. Then at 4 o'clock, I'd show up for my regular job at the grocery store, work till midnight or 1 o'clock, and I went to church every Sunday. Not because I was some superhero. I kind of, you know, as I've mentioned before, I have the strength of 10 men. Uh, But I had a desire to be there. And there were people who, you know, I carpooled, and they were counting on me to pick them up. It's just, it's just, it's a weird way for me to, it's hard for me to relate to somebody who says, can I please not go to church? Uh, we want to be here. Anyway, how did I get off completely on that? Because I haven't even started the message yet. We start, started talking about the assembly, how this, this is the most important thing we do, right? And yet, yeah, that's what it was. This is, one of the, this is the different thing we do. We come to church even if we had a long day, because we know that what we get from this assembly is going to prepare us for what's possibly going to be a long day tomorrow, possibly going to be a long week, some unforeseen trials that we are going to be equipped for because of our dedication to being assembled when we're supposed to be assembled. All right? Now, 
Meanwhile, there are other things that ought to distinguish us even when we are unassembled. This is not an exhaustive list. And more importantly, the things that I'm going to be talking about, this is my 10 things message. I talked about it. I mentioned it on the oblique, I think, a couple of weeks ago, how this was, this was kind of, how this series was sort of similar to this. And I just kind of felt, I'll throw this one in here. It's a message I have preached here before. It's been a number of years. Um, and it's not a typical Scott Miller sermon because it has 10 points. It's a list. And I usually don't do three-point sermons, let alone 10-point sermons. Uh, and every one of these points is absolutely worthy of a sermon and has been, or even a series. But I think it's useful to go ahead and present it in this format, even though I can't give any one of these points of anything like an exhaustive treatment today, but it does lend itself to easy note-taking. So write these things down, look at them. Nothing brand new here. This is, I'm, I'm being uh, Peter again. You, I, I'm telling you these things to stir you up by way of reminder. The word that I was looking at and wanted you to look at, because I mentioned 2 Peter, and you see this in 1 Peter too, the sort of the theme that I would give those, those letters is stability. When you see him word, uh, use words like stable, steadfast, steadfastness, look out for this because they are going to steal from you your steadfastness, you know, these false teachers. It's all about staying on an even keel. There are things that ought to characterize us. We are not immune from persecution. We are not immune from trials. We are not, we are not immune to difficulties. But the way we respond and the way we act in the middle of these things ought to, again, distinguish us from those who do not have the hope that we have as believers. Okay? So, these are points uh, that we should be getting better and better at day by day, whatever your particular role is in the Great Commission, because we are all called to what? Live the gospel and preach the gospel. And some of us have, you have a precise ministry, you know exactly what your calling is in the assembly or or uh, it's maybe some other uh, type of ministry even outside the church, but we should all be doing these things. And they are not in any sort of ranked order. So let's start with this one. Number one, walk in forgiveness. As you read and study the Bible, which, spoiler alert, that's also on this list, you will notice how central forgiveness is to the whole story. I mean, why are we able to stand here today and sing his praises, worship his name, read his word, enjoy fellowship with one another? Uh, because he has forgiven us. By his completed work on the cross, we are forgiven. And one of my favorite parables one of the very earliest sermons I ever preached, I don't think it was the earliest, but one, certainly one of the earliest, was on forgiveness in the parable of, of the, the, the king who forgave the, the, his servant an, a, a debt that was in such a great amount that he, that he couldn't have repaid it in a hundred lifetimes. He had mercy on the servant. And then the servant went out and throttled a fellow servant who owed him five bucks and says, I'll throw you in prison if you don't pay me these five dollars back. And this is kind of the picture we get. If we struggle with forgiving our fellow man, it's because we don't have a real appreciation of what was necessary for God to forgive us. I think this is one of those, you know, yeah, man, here I am. I'm already 
this, this might happen on all 10 points. We might get five of them today if this keeps happening, but I'll try to get through all 10. We, uh, we used to get so excited to hear the testimony of somebody who lived a rotten life for half their life, and then Jesus got a Brother Mac was a great example, you know, just a hellion uh, until his 30s or somewhere in his 30s, I think, when God just radically saved him, and God used that testimony to, to get a lot of uh, especially young men saved over through the years and get their lives turned around. You know, nothing was more exciting in the early days of those full gospel meetings than to hear about somebody who'd spent half their life in prison, got saved, and they tell you just what a horrible person they used to be. Uh, And yet, I maintain that the, the best testimony, you know, as I've grown in the faith, the testimony that, that pleases me most is somebody who was raised in the faith, never strayed from it, and stayed faithful to God until they went home to be with Jesus. You know what I mean? I mean, nobody's born a Christian, but you can be born into a Christian environment, embrace that, and, and at some point, that faith absolutely has to become your own. But I'm a firm believer that you don't have to stray and get out there and experience the world to appreciate what you have. But there might be one slight advantage for the hellion, which, which is this. They have an easier time understanding just what was involved in saving them because of the struggles and, the, and, the, and the, the, at the felt distance between them and God, all right? So, but, but we, what we have to understand is, you know, on the, on the cosmic scale, uh, our, our sins, mild though they might be in comparison, kept us just as separated from God as the murderer, right? And so when we understand that, that really is, I think, the biggest key to walking in forgiveness. But Jesus was explicit about it. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he says this, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That is pretty heavy. I will say, I'll just do one quick commentary on this because uh, I don't want you sweating this too much. I don't believe that what Jesus is talking about here is forgiveness in the sense of salvation. I think if you look at words like iniquity versus trespasses, trespasses are individual acts of sin. And iniquity is the state of sin, the quality of sin. And we could, we've been forgiven our iniquity. All that was taken care of at the cross. But if we mess up, and we do, and we're smart, we go, to, we, go to, we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it, and I'm sorry, I don't want to do it again, help me, forgive me, and, and uh, you know, don't hold this against me. I don't want to, you, and I believe God, when he forgives us our trespasses, uh, he spares us in many instances uh, what would naturally be the result or the consequences of our action, okay? And sometimes that's the heart of why we're praying. I don't want to suffer the penalty for this. All right, not going to go too far down that road. But if we are going to continue to hold something against somebody else, then God's going to say, no, you're just going to continue to suffer the results of your stupid actions too. If you want this person to suffer because of what they've done, then you're going to suffer because of what you've done. I told the, this story. I, I, I didn't, this isn't my story. This is Keith Green's story. He told it years ago about a nice camera that he'd gotten, the first nice camera he'd ever owned. He was excited about taking pictures and, so, and discovered that somebody had, I think, broken into his car and stolen it, and he's trying to be all righteous and everything. He's praying. He said, Lord, he says, uh, 
I don't want that person to sleep. I want them to be tortured. Uh, it, I want their conscience just to, to, to always come back. Every time they try to use that camera, I just want them to just feel terrible, and I hope you will visit judgment on them. Uh, vengeance is yours, and, and I'm just going to let you do it, but please take, you know, you know how much I wanted that camera. You know how much it pleased me. And, and, and he says, the Lord immediately answered him and said, yeah, I'll do that as long as you don't mind me always reminding you of every stupid thing you did. He says, and I immediately started praying, Lord, I just give that camera to that man, and I want him to enjoy it, and I know you're able to provide me with a new one. So let's move on. Second, number two, praise the Lord. Every one of these is going to sound a little bit like, duh, okay? Write them down. Praise the Lord. Always remember that he is worthy of praise no matter what kind of day you are having. To praise the Lord is, is, is not always to say thank you for everything that's in my life. We can praise him in the midst of everything. Uh, we can rejoice in the midst of everything. To, to uh, thank him in the midst of suffering is not to thank him for the suffering. We can, in all circumstances, we can remember who he is. Why do we praise him? Because of who he is. Not because of what he's doing right now. Not because of what I'm experiencing right now. He is God and he's worthy of our praise. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And there were some things that even wise Job didn't understand about God, but he got that, that God is still God and worthy of worship and praise. Philippians 4.4 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Number three, tithe and give. I'd rather we didn't waste time arguing about whether the tithe is Old Testament law. There's certainly no question from the New Testament that we are to give generously into the work of the kingdom. And I'm speaking to a congregation that by and large knows this and practices it. If the tithe is not a legal requirement... It's only because God requires more. Do you understand that our responsibility as New Testament believers is actually higher than the Old Testament believers? When Jesus talked about Old Testament law versus New Testament expectations, he would say things like, ah, here's what you've got right. The, the, the law does say, don't murder. You shall do no murder. What you're missing, though, is the fact that if you hate somebody to even think about murdering, if you wish they were dead, you've committed murder in your heart. The problem is not, you know, the law is there to keep you from acting on those evil impulses. But the true problem is you have those evil impulses. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And you're doing well by not yielding to those particular temptations. But... If you've been tempted, if you've looked at a woman and say, I won't do it, I would never cheat on my wife, or I would never cause a woman to cheat on her husband, but I want to, you've sinned. The problem is, the heart is desperately wicked. You've already committed adultery in your heart. You've already committed murder in your heart. Okay? And, and so I think if you were to ask Jesus today, what about the tithe? He'd say, well, yeah, you've heard. The tithe belongs to the Lord. And yet I'm telling you, it's all his. The tithe is the bare minimum. You give according to what you purpose in your heart. 
And if you don't purpose at least a tithe, what's wrong with your heart? So much of this, in every one of these categories, comes down to imitating Christ. And how much did Jesus give? All right, we'll come back to that idea of, of imitating Christ in, a little bit later. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Number four. Number four. Watch your mouth and other little things. This is not a legalism issue. And again, many of these things have come up in this series. All right? It's just kind of funny when I was looking over this this outline, how many of these things we've talked about in this, in this short series so far. This is not a legalism issue. This is a lordship issue. The word of God clearly condemns coarse speech. Now, every one of well, we don't take the name of the Lord, Lord in vain. In other words, well, there's some cuss words. All cuss words are probably bad, but the bad ones are when you, take a, you, know, you use his name wrong. Well, there's a lot more to that commandment than that. The fact is, the New Testament speaks very strongly against coarse speech. There's some speech that, it, again, it's one of the things that ought to make us look and sound different from unbelievers. Uh, th- there's one story that always sticks in my mind from my early days as an officer. I was a brand new second lieutenant, and I was out in California with the 7th Infantry Division just hanging out with them for a two- or three-week exercise. And I was just attached to this infantry platoon, didn't really have any duties other than just sort of take notes on what happened during these different uh, battle drills and things. But these were some really good soldiers. I really loved hanging out with them. And after uh, three or four days out in the field, this uh, radio telephone operator, who, you know, since he was hanging out at the platoon uh, headquarters, you know, it was basically me and him, the platoon sergeant, platoon leader, that, I, that were together most of the time. He said, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He says, uh, are you religious? Now, I had not, I think I had a Bible in my, in my pocket, but uh, if I had pulled that out of my pocket at that point, I don't remember. And I certainly wasn't being ostentatious about it. I wasn't preaching. I wasn't, there was nothing in that, that, that I could think of that I had done specifically that would cause him to ask that question. I said, well, I said, I don't like the term religious. I said, I do. I am a Christian, and I try to be a committed Christian, but what, what did I do or say to make you ask that question? He says, oh, nothing. You just haven't cussed since we've been out here in the field, and everybody else cusses. And, you know, they, they call the, you, you've heard the phrase, cuss like a sailor, so I guess maybe the Navy is a little bit up on that, a little, little more. But they also had a phrase called Army Creole. Anybody ever heard that phrase, Army Creole? Creole is just regular language, except every other word is a cuss word. And you're surrounded by it all the time. And just the fact that I didn't do that was enough to get his attention. And it opened the door to a week's worth or another week and a half worth of of great conversation. Notice, it wasn't me saying, I wish you guys would quit all this cussing. Would have been a waste of time. It wasn't me preaching against what they were doing. It was simply not doing it. Little things like that. Little things. Praying over your meals. In public. And you don't have to stand up and shout. 
Oh, Lord, even though I am dining in the midst of these heathens who don't bother to thank you for their food, we do thank you for this bounty. No. Just take a few minutes. You know, I love it when uh, you're just getting ready to, uh, you're, you're praying and a waitress is coming up to refill your drinks or something. You ever have them, a waiter or the waitress, and they just sort of stand there and and then they smile. It's like I've never had anybody say, I wish you wouldn't do that in my restaurant. They usually are very, very pleased to see it. Um, anyway, watch your mouth, other little things. Remember, uh, there is, we want one, one of the foundational principles of word of faith Christianity, which is how we would brand ourselves, is that our words are powerful. Say unto this mountain, speak, all these things, our confession, all these things matter. But, and I've said this a thousand times probably, we waste so many words. We speak so many idle words. We say things we don't really mean, and this becomes our habit. I didn't really mean it when I said, I'm going to kill you. I rebuke you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then some, suddenly we want to speak healing over our bodies. We want to speak abundant provision over our, a financial problem. And now we want our words to be powerful. Well, the way for our words to be consistently powerful in those situations where we need them to be is to make sure we are watching the words that come out of our mouth in the unassembled life of faith. James puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Number five, be sexually pure. We talked about this last week and uh, mentioned you know, how, how it's, it's, uh, it grieves me to see how casually this is treated as if since God is a loving and forgiving God. It really doesn't matter. But I want you to think about two things. Uh, and one is the, the whole abortion argument. You know, we, we, I was stunned, pleasantly surprised when the Supreme Court uh, struck down Roe v. Wade. Uh, I have known for many, many years that if you, if you look in the right places, this, this is not just a religious or Christian argument. Many atheistic lawyers and scholars have admitted and written that this was just bad legal precedent. This was bad law and that it was doomed to be overturned. I just thought the longer it took, the less likely it was ever going to be overturned. You know, we've had a conservative a majority on the Supreme Court for many, many more years than we've been in the minority, and they didn't do anything. So all of a sudden, this happens in this day and age. Now what happens? It gets tossed back to the states, and now the states are, are digging their heels in even further. I get that. But do you understand that no matter what they say, this is not about women's health? For years, for centuries, there has been the tension and the struggle of what if the woman's physical life is in danger? And the only way to rescue her is to terminate the pregnancy. That causes real tension. But that's not what is at the heart of Roe v. Wade, is it? Is it? We're talking about whether 
uh, and they've admitted this. I've shared this before, and this was a couple of elections ago, where uh, the, uh, the, during the Democratic National Convention, they, they always have, uh, I think on both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats, they have what they call wingers night, which is when the most extreme right-wing uh, people will come out for the Republicans, and the most extreme left-wing uh, people will come out. They give them one night, all right? And so this is when they would have uh, somebody come out in favor of abortion. This is why we need to defend abortion rights. And, and it was always, uh, here's this, when I was uh, 14, I was raped, and I was impregnated by my rapist, but uh, th you know, thankfully, uh, you know, I live in a free country where I have access to safe, uh, legal ways of uh, terminating this pregnancy so I didn't have to live with this horrible thing. And it was, you know, tug at your heartstrings. At this particular uh, convention on that night, the woman who got up to talk about uh, abortion said, I uh, am married, I'm professional, I make this much money, uh, there is no reason I can't have a baby right now. But when I got pregnant, I realized I just didn't want one. And my husband and I decided to terminate the pregnancy. Uh, with zero, and I'm just glad we live in a country where we can do that. And she got a standing ovation. This has always been, the, the heart of this argument is about convenience. And at the heart of the convenience is, I want to be able to have sex and not suffer the consequences. Now, this is unfair, ladies, but you bear, obviously, the risk you take when we mess with sexual purity, uh, is a much bigger risk than the guy takes. Guys have a much easier time walking away from that. They are not the ones who carry that baby. And it might not be fair, but women, it behooves you uh, to guard your sexual purity for your own protection. Now, in God's eyes, guys, uh, this, is, this is sin, sin, sin. This is something he absolutely condemns. But I wanted you to see the connection between the abortion argument and the Bible's case for sexual purity. This is not something God takes lightly. Go back also now to the 80s when the AIDS epidemic uh, exploded. It, uh, you can research this so that you know I'm not making it up. Uh, when AIDS first appeared on the scene, it was well known to doctors, who, especially who worked in uh, clinics, inner city clinics. Uh, they would see the, a certain uh, set of symptoms present when these patients would come, and they had a name for it. It was called GRIDS. This was, this was the common reference, and every doctor knew what you're talking about, and GRIDS stood for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Because they, everybody who presented with these, these symptoms was, uh, was a gay male. And they passed it from one another by, you know, you know. And so when it began to spread more quickly and more cases showed up and they decided to make a public health announcement... The, and the guy I read, uh, the guy, there was a guy who wrote a book about this back in the... 90, so this was, this was still a little fresher back then. He said, 
after, you know, in all his years of medicine, he had never, ever seen anything like this. He was stunned because this was becoming a, quickly becoming a public health emergency. He said the first thing they did was change the name for political reasons. We can't call it gay-related anything because that's going to uh, put a stigma on the homosexual community, which we don't want to do. And the doctors are saying, but this is who it's affecting. These are the ones who are most at risk. They need to know more than anybody else what spreads this, what causes it, and what the consequences are. No, we're just going to call it now acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Never mind how you acquire it. The overwhelming majority, it was in the gay male population. Then, Obviously, drug use came into it, shared needles, discarded needles, and then into the blood supply. And it spread a, a, a little bit more into the general population. But the fact is, the argument was about, hey, the, the reason this it, it became the heart and soul of the, of the message from the communities who wanted more activism against AIDS was, again, we want to be able to have sex in whatever situation and with whoever we want without the consequences. It's up to society to cure AIDS so I don't have to change my lifestyle. It's up to society to provide abortion and, and all these other things so that I don't have to alter my lifestyle. I can have sex wherever and with whomever I want. That's not the way God planned it. And if we stuck to God's plan, we wouldn't have to worry about these things, would we? All right. But is there anything in the Bible about that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins, the, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's a pretty good place to start when you start deciding what you want to do. You, as a Christian, need to ask, who owns me? Is this my body, or is it the temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay? Number six, <laughs> share your faith. Live the gospel and preach the gospel, right? If you were at the community service last week, was that just last week? Uh, yeah, um, Pastor Ryan from the Church of Christ shared a quote from St. Francis, uh, a, a well-oft-repeated quote, which is this, uh, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Two problems with that, and he nailed one of them. First problem is, it's almost certain that Francis never said that, because Francis was big on preaching. So he probably never said that, but it's still a good quote. Uh, but the other problem with it, and this is where Pastor Ryan zeroed in on correctly, which is you need your words. You can't preach the gospel without using words. This is a word-communicated message. Jesus preached and taught everywhere he went. Yes, we do need to be living right, uh, but people who do this, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, uh, they're missing the heart of that quote, no matter who said it. And uh, they're saying, well, it's more important that I just live my life a certain way than it is for me to open my mouth. No, what it's saying is, uh, when you open your mouth, it needs to be backed by the way you're living your life. Okay? 
The only thing about Christianity that is just about you and God and nobody else is your conversion, your moment of confessing Christ as Lord. Everything else is shared, the body of Christ. And we have a goal, and our goal is to see others converted and saved and turned into disciples. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Number seven, be nice. This is, for some reason, that I preached this at a men's conference years ago. I preached it here, and that is always the one that people remember. This is my favorite point. Be nice. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's being nice, isn't it? Would you rather somebody be nice to you or not? No matter what else they're doing, I'd just prefer that you were nice while you were doing it. Therefore, let's be nice to everybody else. Do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. This is, uh, when we talk about imitating Jesus, now I know he exhibited righteous indignation. He wasn't sweet and syrupy to everybody he talked to. But as you read the scriptures, don't you get the impression that Jesus was a nice guy? Because I sure do. And not just the being nice, but these other things that we're talking about, the commands that he's given us. You know, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, who were a relatively spiritually mature bunch, he said this, be imitators of Christ as dear children. To the immature Corinthians, he wrote this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, he's not saying, imitate me, but only insofar as I imitate Christ because that would assume they could understand what Christ-like behavior was in the first place. He is kind of saying, you guys are too dumb, you're too spiritually immature to know what Christ-like behavior is, so tell you what, for now, just imitate me. Wouldn't it be great to be confident enough in our spiritual walk to come alongside a novice believer and say, just do what I do? Every one of us, to some degree, you act the way you act, or you did at some point, you started exhibiting Christ-like behavior because you were imitating somebody, a Christian that you admired. Sometimes in preachers, it's really obvious. I love thinking of one preacher now who sat under Brother Hagin so long and followed his teaching so well that he preaches just like me, stand there and do this. Well, <laughs> come on, you know. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. He's, he's his own guy. He's got his own message. He preaches a great message, but there's just so much of Brother Hagin in him because that's who he was following. And that's a good thing. We need to have people that we can follow, model our lives on as they model their lives on Christ. And, and he'll bring us to maturity. We're not going to be clones of one another. You understand that, right? Anyway, be nice. Let me read this to you. This is in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Number eight. Told you it was going to show up here. Read your Bible. I won't say a lot about this because that's pretty much what last week's message was all about, but this is huge. God can and has and does reveal himself in many ways. You can have a very real sense of his presence watching a sunrise or a thunderstorm or a waterfall. The Bible tells us that he's revealed himself by the things that are made in creation. This is Romans chapter 1. But at the end of the day, the first and foremost way that God reveals himself to us is the written word. This is the sure way, and we talked about that last week, and it's what Peter was writing about in 2 Peter. Uh, if, if the Jesus we are following, and this is something I've heard, I can't remember, it was some celebrity talking about this, who, yeah, she was raised to be a Christian, but she's, she's come to know that the Jesus she needs is a Jesus who approves of this, tolerates that. And you know, we, all need, we all need something different from God, and God's big enough to be that kind of God for whatever we need. No. <laughs> Jesus is revealed in Scripture. God is revealed in Scripture. God the Father. He doesn't... Now again, he's infinite, and he can manifest himself in different ways, but he's never going to violate or contradict what he's revealed in the Word. And if the Jesus you know is not the Jesus of Scripture, it's not Jesus. You're being deceived. We're in error. First Timothy chapter 3, 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number nine. Pray. This is easier for some people than it is for others. I think we've got a good men's prayer group here. We've got good praying men, but I think as a breed, men might find prayer a little more difficult because we're, and, and not just men, I don't want to sound sexist about this. Some people are just a little more hardwired hard wired to be problem solvers. And uh, I'm going to get things done, and prayer just strikes us sometimes as too passive. I need to be active. I need to be doing this. I can't just pray about it, forget about it, when many times that's exactly what we're called to do. Pray about it and let God deal with it. That's an act of cast. Now, again, we can't be careless. And God's telling us sometimes in prayer, he'll say, all right, here's how we're going to answer that. You need to do this. Prayer, part of prayer is listening too, right? Uh, but genuine prayer requires humility because it recognizes our inability to do anything without him. All right? Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Now listen, once some, well, sometimes we just pray for peace. Sometimes we desire peace. Sometimes we just quote the last half of that there and say, hey, you seem, you seem all uh, frazzled and everything. Don't worry, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Well, 
There's a condition to that, isn't there? Pray in all things. You offer your prayers with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. You actively do these things, and the result is going to be the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Right? Praying, I admire everything that people have gone, they've become historical figures for the things they accomplished for the kingdom of God. But none of these things was done apart from prayer. Prayer is the, far from being a passive uh, aspect of the Christian faith, it is the single most effective thing that we can do. And I'll, and I'll, I'll say this, because uh, the two, I, I used to say Christianity 101 is pray and read your Bible. Those, are the, those two things go hand in hand. Uh, what's more important? I can't say. I can't say that one's more important than the other, because if you're going to pray, I just said praying is the most effective thing you can do, but that's only if your prayers are effective. You know, it is the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much. And for it to be an effectual prayer, an effective prayer, it has to be scriptural. You've got to be praying based on what God has said you can pray for, based on how he says you should pray for certain things. There has to be faith in that prayer. And the only way you can pray a scripturally effective prayer is to know what the word says. So you've got to read the Bible to pray effectively. And for the, and for the word to be working in your life, you have to pray it out. The word and prayer go hand in hand. Number 10, go to church. Like we haven't said that enough in this series, right? No matter where else you find God, whether it's a sunrise, your back porch, deer stand, mountaintop, Jesus said he would build his church, and the church is the assembly. We're called to do this thing in community. Again, the only private thing about your faith is your conversion. And your, and your, your devotional life, I get that. But we are called to do this thing as the body of Christ, in concert with one another. Um, when we talk about certain things that, that God has called us to lay down, when we look at some of the things, you know, sexual purity and, and our appetites, our lusts, and things that, that draw us to sin, uh, it's not just a matter of... Uh, is this sin, is this going to get me in trouble with God, but is this good for the body of Christ? I can tolerate this in me, but do you ever think about what that's doing to the rest of the body? We have a selfish way of viewing things sometimes, don't we? You don't have to go to church to be saved. It's not what I'm saying at all. But that's usually how people respond. Isn't it? Where do you go to church? Well, I don't really think you have to go to church to be saved. The Bible says, ah, that's not what I asked you. I'll say, you know, don't want to sound like a broken record, but you know, you need the church like the finger needs the hand. The church needs you like the hand needs the finger. See the difference? The church is, good, is if, if you're supposed to be at a church and you're not there, the church just misses something. But if you're supposed to be there and you're not, you are way worse off. The finger without a hand is way worse off than a hand without a finger. Right? Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another 
in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This, and praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. This is really, that's, that's the, probably the most famous text on the assembly and the importance of assembling. But you'd notice there, uh, it's not, hey, don't forget, you really need church, so don't, so don't give up on going. Don't forsake the assembly because you need this. Uh, that's absolutely true. But what this verse is saying is there, what can I contribute? Let us consider one another. How is my going to the assembly going to contribute to you, stir you up toward love and good deeds. It's not, what can I get? Because if we think about what I can get, then we say, well, I feel like I'm okay. I'm really not missing anything by, by not going to church. No, we're missing you, though. We're missing you. You're not bringing something to the table that somebody needs. Stand up with me. Well, you've heard it all before, but are you still glad you came? Did you write these things down? All right. Do you wish I'd do more 10-point sermons? Too bad. We'll see. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'll never say never. Amen. Uh, I've referenced this a couple times in this message today, which is this. There is a moment that is between you and God. Nope, church doesn't save you. Uh, I grew up for a while. Uh, thankfully, I was relieved. I was disabused of this notion at a fairly young age, but I just thought I was going to heaven because I was a good church-going kid, and part of a good church-going family. Many children uh, grow up believing that because they attended certain classes or went through a certain ritual, uh, that they have nothing to worry about. Even people who believe in heaven and hell often believe that hell is reserved only for the worst monsters in history. Hitler's probably in hell. Stalin's probably in hell. Uh, but me? Certainly, I'm going to heaven because I'm so much better than Hitler. Is that really what you want to compare yourself to? But who's God comparison to? When, when we talk about righteousness, he compares us to himself, compares us to his son. Anybody want to be uh, judged on, uh, on that scale? Your own goodness against the, good, the, perf the perfection, the holiness of God? No, no thank you. So what's he do? Uh, the only thing that's good enough for my presence is this kind of holiness. And you're right, you can't achieve it on your own. But I got an idea. Here's my plan. It's not just something I just came up with. This was my plan from the foundation of the earth. I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to credit Jesus with it, and I'm going to judge that sin in him. Not only that, I'm going to take his righteousness, his holiness, and I'm going to cover you with that. I'm going to clothe you with the righteousness of God so that I can see you as righteous, so that I can count you as righteous, so that I can receive you into my presence. It's a good deal. And all of that was paid for. He's not looking at you now thinking, do I want to make you this offer? And we don't have to go to him saying, please, please, please do that for me. He says, I did it once and for all through Jesus Christ at the cross. The price is paid for whosoever will. If you will look to the cross, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then that salvific work that he accomplished on the cross becomes effective for you at that moment. That is what the new birth is. You become a new creature at that moment. Some things will change very, very quickly. 
Some things you'll grow in, but it starts with the new birth. Does anybody need to make that decision today? I'll help you with the answer. If you've never made that decision, you need to make that decision today. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. Don't gamble on your eternity because you think you're going to feel funny walking down in front of 100 people. We've been there. Don't rob yourself of the future, the glorious destiny that God has for you and wants for you so bad that he paid with the blood of his son. I'm going to pray a quick prayer. When I'm done praying, you guys start singing. And if you need to be saved, you need to be born again, come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these rules. We know that your word and your precepts, your laws, your commandments are not burdensome, but they are good. And that you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in those things, to walk in a manner that pleases you and delivers this life-giving, light-bringing word to a world that desperately needs to see and hear it. Lord, it's my prayer now, and I believe it's the prayer of every believer in this room, that if there is an unbeliever in this room, they will recognize themselves as such. If there's anybody in here in need of salvation who has never named you as Lord, has never received that free gift, that you would convict them of their need, you would fill them with a desire for nothing more, for nothing else but that salvation that you've provided so richly. And grant them the humility to come, the boldness to come, the wisdom to come and receive that free gift today. In Jesus' name, all the believers said, Amen. God bless you as you come. Let me pray with you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.